October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Avenus History Podcast, episode number two, William Miller, the Deist. Last week we talked about the environment that the as-of-yet-unborn Adventist church would grow up in. We ended up talking about the boundless optimism many Americans felt, both politically and in the realm of religion. For more than a few, that meant the belief that a thousand years of peace with Jesus was just around the corner, party on. But then there was William Miller, who didn't exactly join in the group hug. And no one, no one, is more responsible for getting this Adventist ship out to sea than William Miller. To be sure, William Miller never became a Seventh-day Adventist, but the fact that the founders of the church later referred to him as Father Miller says something. Miller was born in 1782, so he wasn't really even aware of the Revolution because it ended when he was one. If the Revolutionary War generation was the greatest generation, then Miller was part of the baby boomers. It was during Miller's teens and twenties that the founders began to disappear, being replaced by the New Bloods. Miller's dad, also named William Miller, made captain as a veteran of the Revolution. So William Miller Jr. was raised in a Baptist home, as both his grandfather and his uncle were Baptist preachers. Here's a shout out to all the pastors, kids. Stay strong. Miller later confessed that he tried very hard to do what he thought pleased God. On one hand, he tried to be really good and do nothing wrong, but that didn't seem to last long. Then he tried self-sacrifice. Maybe if I just give up enough things, God will accept me. Miller's failure on both these parts just left him frustrated and unfulfilled. Miller took it out on his preacher of an uncle, who was also the pastor of his church. You have to understand that many preachers leaned to the side of fire and brimstone as a means of attracting people to church. You'd better come to church. You don't want to burn in hell forever, do you? Now, I'm sure many of them meant well, because their goal really was that people come to know Jesus, but the effect was often to create an insecure, intimidated, and scared Christians. There's no evidence that Miller's uncle Elihu preached this way, but it was standard Baptist fare at the time. To give you an idea, consider the 1803 sermon by Matthias Burnett, who argued that, quote, Whoever therefore regards his own interest or that of the public must be a friend to religion as the surest bond of propriety in all private dealings and as the best preservative of national peace and welfare. End quote. He went on to argue that the person who doesn't believe in God or eternity or the final judgment lacks a logical restraint to not go out and commit all sorts of crimes. Or, as Burnett put it, quote, Banish a sense of religion and the terrors of the world to come from society, and you at once dissolve the sacred obligations of conscience and leave every man to do that which is right in his own eyes. You let mankind loose like so many beasts of prey to roam at large, to deceive, to destroy, and devour all whom fraud or force may put in its power. This is difficult to stomach since atheism has hit the mainstream these days, but you still hear Christians making similar arguments today. We haven't begun cannibalizing each other simply because we've become tolerant of Jews, Muslims, and others in America. The point is that Christians in the early 19th century firmly believed that being a good Christian was the key to being a good citizen. Belief in God keeps the sinful, criminal elements of humanity in check. It was a philosophy of negative incentive, superimposed over the system of laws and punishments that already existed. Maybe, just maybe... If we tell people that murder is punishable by death in this life by the government, 
and by eternal suffering in the next life by God, it might just discourage people from murdering. So you can understand that William's mother was distraught when he began rebelling. He didn't treat his uncle or grandfather with the respect due to them as elders and members of the clergy. The restraint of religion seemed to be wearing off on him. He started reading books and learned that he loved them. But the only books his parents had were the Bible, the Psalter, or the hymnal, and the prayer book. To be fair, his family eventually grew into 16 children, so perhaps we can forgive them for not housing a massive library. Between his ninth and 14th years, he went to school for three months each winter, when there was no work to be done on the farm. The teachers were rather second-rate, and William discovered that he knew more than they did, by virtue of his reading. Where he got the books, who can say? It's clear that he borrowed many, but he soon ran afoul of his father over them. William lived on a farm, and having children on a farm was a matter of getting some free labor. William's father was concerned that his incessant reading would interfere with his chores around the farm. But William wouldn't be stopped. He would hide a few pieces of firewood each day and wait until everyone went to sleep, reading late at night. That worked fine until his father woke up one night, saw the fire, and thought the house was on fire. William Miller Sr. grabbed a whip and chased his son all over the place, promising to whip him if he didn't get to bed immediately. Then the neighbors called Child Protective Services and William was moved to a foster home. Oh wait, that didn't happen. It's probably for the best, because William's dad mellowed out, agreeing on a plan that allowed William to read if he did extra work. Things got even better for William when the local gentry agreed to feed William's appetite for books by loaning him some from their libraries. He read a few novels, but seemed to especially enjoy history, as is evidenced later on in life. He was apparently good at writing also, because a number of his friends and acquaintances looked to him when they needed a love poem written, or what have you. But William's life took a serious turn when he turned 21. He met a girl. Technically, he married her. Her name was Lucy Smith, and she was from Pulteney, Vermont. Yeah, a Smith married a Miller. Just what we needed, the two most common names in America getting together. In any case, he moved to Pulteney, where there was a public library. For those of our listeners who may not know, a public library was a place where books could be borrowed for a period of time. It was like a red box, but for books. I think there are still a few around if you want to see what they're like. When the newly married Miller became known around town as a thoughtful, intelligent kind of guy, the town intelligentsia found him. These were deists, which meant that, yeah, they believed in God, but God was unknowable and he certainly didn't reveal himself through the Bible. That's ridiculous. Miller wrote that they gave him the works of Voltaire, Hume, Paine, Ethan Allen, and others. It's not really clear what his wife thought of this new influence, but she generally supported his reading habits. That being said, she didn't support him nearly as much as Matthew Lyon did. Lyon was an ex-congressman whose anti-federalist mantra led to his imprisonment in 1798. He served under Ethan Allen in the Revolutionary War and opened his library up to the inquiring Miller. His friendship went a long way to encourage Miller to drop those old Baptist beliefs, which were basically just hanging around until they could be replaced by this point anyway, and to embrace deism. It may be difficult to sympathize much with impersonal deism from our vantage point today, but you should at least appreciate that its fingerprints were all over early America and that it helped to make us who we are today. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, all of these men were deists or some variation therein. None of the uniquely Christian words for God, like Father or Holy Spirit or even Jesus, made their way into our founding documents. 
Instead, those documents say creator or providence or some other distant language. Article 11 of the peace treaty between the United States and the Muslim Barbary states makes it clear that, quote, the government of the United States of America is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion, end quote. It's good to understand that America was founded more in deism than Christianity. Only then can we have a clue as to why William Miller would ever want to be a deist. It was the reigning intellectual mood of the time. Miller remained a faithful deist for the next decade and served his community as a model citizen. He became a mason and served as constable, sheriff, and justice of the peace. He still hobnobbed with the intellectual elite, but noticeable cracks began to appear in his deism. First, he began to have concerns with the futility of deism. Many deists claimed to believe in an afterlife, but Miller began to suspect that deism logically led to nothingness. Second, deism taught that mankind was basically good. But the more widely read Miller became, the less he was convinced of this truth. Was society really getting better, or were human beings simply the same underneath nicer clothes and customs? This must have been a difficult problem to wrestle with, because there was great optimism in early America about manifest destiny in a sense that we humans had finally turned a corner by protecting human rights and dignity. To even consider doubting this would be depressing. The more I read, Miller wrote, the more dreadfully corrupt did the character of man appear. I could discern no bright spot in the history of the past. Those conquerors of the world, the heroes of history, were apparently but demons in human form. All the sorrow, suffering, and misery in the world seemed to be increased in proportion to the power they obtained over their fellows. I began to feel very distrustful of all men, in this state of mind, I entered the service of my country. I fondly cherished the idea that I should find one bright spot, at least in the human character, as a star of hope, a love of country, patriotism. End quote. So Miller joined the militia as his last star of hope, as he put it, in the character of man. Surely patriotism was pure. When Pulteney had been getting ready to celebrate independence, we're told that Miller secretly penned a hymn and slid it on the desk of the man who was organizing the celebration, called Mr. Ashley, without him knowing about it. Mrs. Ashley happened to cross it, and, thinking her husband had written it, brought it to him. He immediately loved it and demanded it be copied for the whole town to sing. The first stanza went like this, Our independence, dear, bought with the price of blood. Let us receive with care and trust our Maker, God. For He's the tower to which we fly. His grace is nigh in every hour. If you're thinking this hymn sounds suspiciously Christian, you'd be right. That may explain something of why he didn't want his authorship widely known. But it got out anyway. Miller was a patriot through and through, and if anything could restore his faith in humanity, it would be the second war against Britain that was soon to break. When the War of 1812 did break out, Miller was transferred to the regular army as a lieutenant. He spent the first couple of years as a recruiter before finally getting his chance in battle in 1814 as a captain. On September 4th, he wrote his wife from Fort Moreau, near Plattsburgh, New York, complaining that the soldiers under his command were far from disciplined and ready. He wrote, quote, The British are within ten miles of this place, and we expect a battle tomorrow, and I think they must be damned fools if they do not attack us or they are ten or eleven thousand strong, and we are only fifteen hundred." Miller then closed the letter by saying something odd. Remember, he said, 
You will never hear from me if I am a coward. Miller, if anything, understated the condition of the American troops. They were largely recruits, wounded, or various odds and ends from other units, whereas the British troops had just arrived from Europe where they had been fighting Napoleon. In short, William Miller was in for a massacre. The battle began with a series of skirmishes on the 6th of September. The British took Plattsburgh, and the Americans responded by heating their cannonballs red-hot and burning several of the buildings down which the British were hiding in. British infantry from the 76th Regiment of Foot skirmished with the Americans before hearing the call to retreat. Strangely enough, the British left that night. What Miller and many other soldiers didn't realize was that a rather crafty American naval commander named Thomas McDonough had decimated the British fleet that was supporting their advance in the battle on Lake Champlain. Without those ships, the British knew that even if they beat the Americans at Plattsburgh, they could scarcely go further. It was pointless, and so a retreat was sounded. The war had essentially been a stalemate to this point. Peace talks in Belgium had started in August, and the British by now knew that they needed to settle. That didn't stop them from sending off a few final campaigns to capture some territory so they could negotiate from a position of strength. The first force fought at Plattsburgh, and the second burned Washington and went for Baltimore, where they were defeated a few days after Plattsburgh. The final force went for New Orleans, where they were defeated a few months later. We don't know all the details about Miller's role in the battle, but his letter to a friend back home on September 11th at 20 minutes past 2 p.m. shows him breathless with excitement. He quotes, Sir, it is over. It is done. The British fleet has struck to the American flag. Great slaughter on both sides. They are in plain view where I am now writing. My God, the sight was majestic. It was noble. It was grand. I have no time to write any more. You must conceive what we feel, for I cannot describe it. I am satisfied that I can fight. I know I am no coward. End quote. But for Miller, something began to change. He would write years later that, So surprising result, against such odds, did seem to me the work of a mightier power than man. End quote. On October 28, 1814, Miller wrote to his wife about an acquaintance that had died of a fever after the battle. It brought to Miller's mind his own mortality. And he wrote that, quote, Could I be sure of one other life, there would be nothing terrific, he meant terrifying, but to go on like an extinguished taper is insupportable. The thought is doleful. No, rather let me cling to that hope which warrants a never-ending existence, a future spring where troubles shall cease. End quote. While this didn't mean he thought the Bible to be inspired and all of that, he did conclude that, quote, I should rather prefer the heaven and hell of the scriptures and take my chance respecting them. End quote. It reminds us of old Pascal's wager. After all, what do you have to lose by betting on heaven? After the war, Miller moved back to Lowhampton from Poultney, and thus left his deistic friends behind. He had serious doubts about deism, but that didn't mean he didn't also have long-standing grievances with Christianity. Nevertheless, he went to church while he lived in this no-man's land between May of 1816 and October of 1816. Miller even attended his uncle's church, though only on the Sundays when his uncle was there. Eventually, his mother got fed up with William only coming when his uncle was there and told him so. The deacons who preached in the pastor's absence generally read sermons out of a book, and, to William at least, this was horrendously boring. He told his mother that he could do better. 
She told this to the deacons, who said that'd be a great idea so long as they got to pick the sermon that he read, just to be safe. Imagine that, a deist preaching in a Baptist church. On September 11th, the second anniversary of Plattsburgh, the town was going to have a celebration. Taking advantage of this, the church had a service the night before, which William and his friends attended more out of curiosity than anything else. But they left somber. It was soon to be time for William Miller to make a choice. That Sunday, the deacons handed Miller a sermon on the importance of parental duties, which seems like a pretty benign topic to say the least. But it impressed William mightily. He choked up at the picture of God as a father and human beings as his children. He wrote, I immediately felt how lovely such a being must be and imagined that I could cast myself into the arms of and trust in the mercy of such a one. End quote. But he couldn't tell how such a God could exist. How does one demonstrate this? Remember, Deus believed in God, but that this God wasn't personal, that he couldn't be known by us and didn't care. But Miller wanted to believe, badly. Some Deist friends in Lowhampton were confused. Wasn't this the William Miller who mocked Christians for being blind sheep? They asked him what was changing his mind and brought up his old objection that the Bible couldn't be trusted. Miller replied, Give me time, and I will harmonize all those apparent contradictions to my own satisfaction, or I will be a deist still. End quote. Miller famously set to work with a Bible in a concordance, comparing verse with verse and only reading so far ahead as he could understand. He didn't read commentaries that other people had written. He was in it to discover this for himself. In the way, he came up with 20 articles of faith, short, basic sentences which summarized what he believed to be true about God. It ends with, I believe in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper to be... Dot, dot, dot. It was left unfinished. The only one of those articles of faith that didn't fit neatly with what most Christians of the day might believe would have been number 15, which stated that he believed Jesus was coming back soon. Very soon, in fact. So soon that he put a date on it, on or before... 1843. Next week, we'll talk about the second half of Miller's life and how on earth he thought Jesus was going to come that soon. Before his conversion, he had influential friends, was a model citizen, and was highly respected by both Christians and deists. He was prepared to hang everything on the line in predicting that Jesus would arrive in 21 years. There was little time and, truly, so much to be done. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus History content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So... 
you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.